Chapter Six, Part Four of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume One, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six: The First Winter, Part Four. Then there were lectures on geology by Debenham, on birds and beasts, and also on sketching by Wilson, on surveying by Evans but perhaps no lecture remains more vividly in my memory than that given by Oates on what we called the mismanagement of horses. Of course, to all of us who were relying upon the ponies for the first stage of the southern journey, the subject was of interest as well as utility, but the greater share of interest centred upon the lecturer, for it was certainly supposed that the taciturn Titus could not have concealed about his person the gift of the gab, and it was as certain as it could be that the whole business was most distasteful to him. Imagine our delight when he proved to have an elaborate discourse with full notes of which no one had seen in preparation. "'I have been fortunate in securing another night,' he mentioned amidst mirth, and proceeded to give us the most interesting and able account of the minds and bodies of horses in general, and ours in particular. He ended with a story of a dinner-party at which he was a guest, probably against his will. A young lady was so late that the party sat down to dinner without waiting longer. Soon she arrived, covered with blushes and confusion. "'I'm so sorry,' she said, "'but that horse was the limit he—' "'Perhaps it was a jibber,' suggested her hostess, to help her out. "'No, he was a—I heard the cabby tell him so several times.' Titus Oates was the most cheerful and lovable old pessimist that you could imagine. Often, after tethering and feeding our ponies at a night camp on the barrier, we would watch the dog-teams coming up into camp. "'I'll give these dogs ten days more,' he would murmur in a voice such as some people used when they heard of a British victory. I am acquainted with so few dragoons that I do not know their general characteristics. Few of them, I imagine, would have gone about with the slouch which characterised his method of locomotion, nor would many of them have dined in a hat so shabby that it was picked off the peg and passed round as a curiosity. He came to look after the horses and as an officer in the Inniskillings he no doubt had excellent training, but his skill went far deeper than that. There was little he didn't know about horses, and the pity is that he did not choose our ponies for us in Siberia. We should have had a very different lot. In addition to his general charge of them all, Oates took as his own pony the aforesaid devil Christopher for the southern journey, and for previous training. We shall hear much more of Christopher, who appeared to have come down to the Antarctic to initiate the well-behaved inhabitants into all the vices of civilization. but from beginning to end Oates's management of this animal might have proved a model to any governor of a lunatic asylum. His tact, patience, and courage, for Christopher was a very dangerous beast, remain some of the most vivid recollections of a very gallant gentleman. In this connection let me add that no animals could have had more considerate and often self-sacrificing treatment than these ponies of ours. Granted that they must be used at all, and I do not mean to enter into that question, they were fed, trained, and even clothed as friends and companions rather than as beasts of burden. They were never hit, a condition to which they were clearly unaccustomed. They lived far better than they had before, and all this was done for them in spite of the conditions under which we ourselves lived. We became very fond of our beasts, but we could not be blind to their faults. The mind of a horse is a very limited concern, relying almost entirely upon memory. He rivals our politicians in that he has little real intellect. 
Consequently, when the pony was faced with conditions different from those to which he was accustomed, he showed but little adaptability. And when you add to this frozen harness and rugs, with all their straps and buckles and lashings, an incredible facility for eating anything within reach, including his own tethering ropes and the headstalls, fringes and what-nots of his companions, together with our own scanty provisions and a general wish to do anything except the job of the moment, it must be admitted that the pony leader's lot was full of occasions for bad temper. Nevertheless, leaders and ponies were on the best of terms, excepting always Christopher, which is really not surprising when you come to think that most of the leaders were sailors, whose love of animals is profound. A lean-to roof was built against the northern side of the hut, and the ends and open side were boarded up. This building was buttressed by the bricks of coal which formed our fuel, and drifted up with snow by the blizzards, formed an extremely sheltered and even warm stable. The ponies stood in stalls with their heads towards the hut, and divided from it by a corridor. The bars which kept them in carried also their food-boxes. They lay down very little, the ground was too cold, and Oates was of opinion that litter would not have benefited them if we had had space in the ship to bring it. The floor of their stall was formed of the gravel on which the hut was built. On any future occasion it might be worth consideration whether a flooring of wood might add to their comfort. As you walked down this narrow passage, you passed a line of heads, many of which would have a nip at you in the semi-darkness, and at the far end Oates had rigged up for himself a blubber-stove, more elaborate than the one we had made with the odds and ends at Hut Point, but in principle the same, in that the fids of sealskin, with the blubber attached to them, were placed on a grid, and the heat generated caused them to drop their oil onto ashes below which formed the fire. This fire not only warmed the stable, but melted the snow to water the ponies, and heated their bran-mashes. I do not wonder that this warm, companionable home appealed to their minds when they were exercising in the cold, dark, windy sea-ice. They were always trying to get rid of their leader, and, if successful, generally went straight back to the hut. Here they would dodge their pursuers until such time as they were sick of the game, when they quietly walked into the stable of their own accord to be welcomed with triumphant squeals and kickings by their companions. I have already spoken of their exercise. Their ration during the winter was as follows. 8 a.m. Chaff. 12 noon. Snow. Chaff and oats or oil cake alternate days. 5 p.m. Snow. Hot bran mash with oil cake or boiled oats and chaff. Finally, a small quantity of hay. In the spring they were got into condition on hard food or cold, and by a carefully increased scale of exercise, during the latter part of which they drew sledges with very light loads. Unfortunately, I have no record as to what changes of feeding-stuffs oats would have made if it had been possible. Certainly, we should not have brought the bales of compressed fodder, which, as I have already explained, was theoretically green wheat cut young, but practically no manner of use as food, though of some use perhaps as bulk. Probably he would have used hay for this purpose at winter quarters, had our stock of it not been very limited, for hay takes up too much room on a ship when every square inch of stowage space is of value. The original weights of fodder with which we left New Zealand were compressed chaff, thirty tons, hay, five tons, oil cake, five to six tons, bran, four to five tons, and two kinds of oats, of which the white was better than the black. We wanted for more bran than we had. This does not exhaust our list of feeding stuffs, for one of our ponies called Snippets would eat blubber, and so far as I know it agreed with him. 
We left New Zealand with nineteen ponies, seventeen of which were destined for the main party, and two for the help of Campbell in the exploration of King Edward VII's land. Two of these died in the big gale at sea, and we landed fifteen ponies at Cape Evans in January. Of these we lost six on the depot journey, while Hackenschmidt, who was a vicious beast, sickened and wasted away in our absence for no particular reason that we could discover, until there was nothing to do but shoot him. Thus eight only, out of the original seventeen main party ponies which started from New Zealand's, were left by the beginning of the winter. I have told how, during our absence on the depot journey, the ship had tried to land Campbell with his two ponies on King Edward VII's land, but had been prevented from reaching it by pack-ice. Coasting back in search of a landing-place, they found Amundsen in the Bay of Wales. Under the circumstances, Campbell decided not to land his party there, but try and land on the north coast of South Victoria Land, in which he was finally successful. In the interval, the ship returned to Cape Evans with the news, and since he was of opinion that his animals would be useless to him in that region, he took the opportunity to swim the two ponies ashore, a distance of half a mile, for the ship could get no nearer, and the sea-ice had gone. Thus we started the winter with Campbell's two ponies, Jehu and Chinaman, two ponies which had survived the depot journey, Nobby and James Pig, and six ponies which had been left at Cape Evans, Snatcher, Snippets, Bones, Victor, Michael, and Christopher, a total of ten. Of these, Christopher was the only real devil with vice, but he was a strong pony, and it was clear that he would be useful if he could be managed. Bones, Snatcher, Victor, and Snippets were all useful ponies. Michael was a highly strung nice beast, but his value was doubtful. Chinaman was more doubtful still, and it was questionable sometimes whether Jehu would be able to pull anything at all. This leaves Nobby and Jimmy Pig, both of which were with us on the depot journey. Nobby was the best of the two. He was the only survivor from the sea-ice disaster, and I am not sure that his rescue did not save the situation with regard to the pole. Jimmy Pig was wending his way slowly back from corner camp at this time, and so was also saved. He was a weak pony, but did extremely well on the polar journey. It may be coincidence that these two ponies, the only ponies which had gained previous sledging experience, did better, according to their strength, than any of the others. But I am inclined to believe that their familiarity with the conditions on the barrier was of great value to them, doing away with much useless worry and exhaustion. And so it will be understood with what feelings of anxiety any cases of injury or illness to our ponies were regarded. The cases of injury were few and of small importance, thanks to the care with which they were exercised in the dark, on ice, which was by no means free from inequalities. Let me explain in passing that this ice is almost always covered by at least a thin layer of drifted snow, and for the most part is not slippery. Every now and then there would be a great banging and crashing heard through the walls of the hut in the middle of the night. The watchman would run out, Oates put on his boots, Scott be audibly uneasy. It was generally Bones or Chinaman kicking their stalls, perhaps to keep themselves warm, but by the time the watchman had reached the stable, he would be met by a line of sleepy faces blinking at him in the light of the electric torch, each saying plainly that he could not possibly have been responsible for a breach of the peace. But antics might easily lead to accidents, and more than once a pony was found twisted up in some way in his stall, or even to have fallen to the ground. Their heads were tied on either side to the stanchions of the stall, and so if they tried to lie down complications might arise. More alarming was the one serious case of illness, preceded by a slighter case of a similar nature in another pony. 
Jimmy Pig had a slight attack of colic in the middle of June, but he was feeling all right again during the evening of the same day. It was at noon, July 14th, that Bones went off his feed. This was followed by spasms of acute pain. Every now and again he attempted to lie down, and Oates eventually thought it was wiser to allow him to do so. Once down, his head gradually drooped until he lay at length, every now and then twitching very horribly with the pain, and from time to time raising his head, and even scrambling to his legs when it grew intense. I don't think I ever realised before how pathetic a horse could be under such conditions. No sound escapes him. His misery can only be indicated by those distressing spasms, and by dumb movement of the head, with a patient expression always suggestive of appeal. Towards midnight it seemed that we were to lose him, and apart from other considerations we knew that unless we could keep all the surviving animals alive, the risks of failure in the coming journey were much increased. It was shortly after midnight when I, Scott, was told that the animal seemed a little easier. At two-thirty I was again in the stable and found the improvement had been maintained. The horse still lay on its side, with outstretched head, but the spasms had ceased, and its eye looked less distressed, and its ears pricked to occasional noises. As I stood looking it suddenly raised its head, and rose without effort to his legs. Then, in a moment, as though some bad dream had passed, it began to nose at some hay and at its neighbour. Within three minutes it had drunk a bucket of water, and had started to feed. The immediate cause of the trouble was indicated by a small ball of semi-fermented hay covered with mucus and containing tapeworms, so far not very serious, but unfortunately attached to this mass was a strip of the lining of the intestine. The recovery of bones was uninterrupted. Two days later another pony went off his feed and lay down, but was soon well again. Considerable speculation as to the original cause of this illness never found a satisfactory answer. Some traced it to a want of ventilation, and it is necessary to say that both the ponies who were ill stood next to the blubber stove. At any rate a big ventilator was fitted, and more fresh air let in. Others traced it to the want of water, supposing that the animals would not eat as much snow as they would have drunk water. The easy remedy for this was to give them water instead of snow. We also gave them more salt than they had had before. Whatever the cause may have been, we had no more of this colic, and the improvement in their condition until we started sledging was uninterrupted. All the ponies were treated for worms. It was also found that they had lice, which were eradicated after some time and difficulty by a wash of tobacco and water. I know that Oates wished that he had clipped the ponies at the beginning of the winter, believing that they would have had grown far better coats if this had been done. He also would have wished for a loose box for each pony. No account of the ponies would be complete without the mention of our Russian pony-boy, Anton. He was small in height, but he was exceedingly strong, and had a chest measurement of forty inches. I believe both Anton and Dmitri, the Russian dog-driver, were brought originally to look after the ponies and dogs on their way from Siberia to New Zealand, but they proved such good fellows and so useful that we were very glad to take them on the strength of the landing party. I fear that Anton, at any rate, did not realise what he was in for. When we arrived at Cape Crozier in the ship on our voyage south, and he saw the two great peaks of Ross Island in front, and the barrier cliff disappearing in an unbroken wall below the eastern horizon, he imagined that he had reached the South Pole, and was suitably elated. When the darkness of the winter closed down upon us, 
this apparently unnatural order of things so preyed upon his superstitious mind that he became seriously alarmed where the sea-ice joined the land in front of the hut was of course a working crack caused by the rise and fall of the tide sometimes the sea-water found its way up and anton was convinced that the weird phosphorescent lights which danced up out of the sea were devils in propitiation we found that he had sacrificed to them his most cherished luxury his scanty allowance of cigarettes which he had literally cast upon the waters in the darkness it was natural that his thoughts should turn to the comforts of his siberian home and the one-legged wife whom he was going to marry there and when it became clear that another year would be spent in the south his mind was troubled and so he went to oates and asked him if i go away at the end of this year will captain scott disinherit me in order to try and express his idea for he knew little english he had some days before been asking what we called it when a father died and left his son nothing poor anton he looked long and anxiously for the ship and with his kit-bag on his shoulder was amongst the first to trek across the ice to meet her having asked for and obtained a job of work there was no happier man on board he never left her until she reached new zealand nevertheless he was always cheerful always working and a most useful addition to our small community it is still usual to talk of people living in complete married happiness when we really mean so mr bernard shaw tells me that they confine their quarrels to thursday nights if then i say that we lived this life for nearly three years from the day when we left england until the day we returned to new zealand without any friction of any kind i shall be supposed to be making a formal statement of somewhat limited truth may i say that there is really no formality about it and nothing but the truth to be absolutely accurate i must admit to having seen a man in a very prickly state on one occasion that was all it didn't last and may have been well justified for aught i know i have forgotten what it was all about why we should have been more fortunate than polar travellers in general it is hard to say but undoubtedly a very powerful reason was that we had no idle hours there was no time to quarrel before we went south people were always saying you will get fed up with one another what will you do all the dark winter as a matter of fact the difficulty was to get through with the work often after working all through a long night watch officers carried on as a matter of course through the following day in order to clear off arrears there was little reading or general relaxation during the day certainly not before supper if at all and while no fixed hours for work were laid down the custom was general that all hours between breakfast and supper should be so used our small company was desperately keen to obtain results the youngest and most cynical pessimist must have had cause for wonder to see a body of healthy and not unintellectual men striving thus single-mindedly to add their small quota of scientific and geographical knowledge to the sum total of the world with no immediate prospect of its practical utility laymen and scientists alike were determined to attain the objects to gain which they had set forth and i believe that in a vague intangible way there was an ideal in front of and behind this work it is really not desirable for men who do not believe that knowledge is of value for its own sake to take up this kind of life the question constantly put to us in civilization was and still is what is the use is there gold or is there coal the commercial spirit of the present day can see no good in pure science the english manufacturer is not interested in research which will not give him a financial return within one year 
the city man sees in it only so much energy wasted on unproductive work. Truly they are bound to the wheel of conventional life. Now, unless a man believes that such a view is wrong, he has no business to be down south. Our magnetic and meteorological work may, I suppose, have a fairly immediate bearing upon commerce and shipping, otherwise I cannot imagine any branch of our labours which will do more at present than swell the central pool of unapplied knowledge. The members of this expedition believed that it was worth while to discover new land and new life, to reach the southern pole of the earth, to make elaborate meteorological and magnetic observations, and extended geological surveys with all the other branches of research for which we were equipped. They were prepared to suffer great hardship, and some of them died for their beliefs. Without such ideals the spirit which certainly existed in our small community would have been impossible. But if the reasons for this happy state of our domestic life were due largely to the adaptability and keenness of the members of our small community, I doubt whether the frictions which have caused other expeditions to be less comfortable than they might have been would have been avoided in our case, had it not been for the qualities of some of our men which set a fashion of hard work without any thought of personal gain. With all its troubles it is a good life. We came back from the barrier, telling one another we loathed the place, and nothing on earth should make us return. But now the barrier comes back to us, with its clean, open life, and the smell of the cooker, and its soft, sound sleep. So much of the trouble of this world is caused by memories, for we only remember half. We have forgotten, or nearly forgotten, how the loss of a biscuit-crumb left a sense of injury which lasted for a week, how the greatest friends were so much on one another's nerves that they did not speak for days for fear of quarrelling, how angry we felt when the cook ran short on the weekly bag, how sick we were after the first meals when we could eat as much as we liked, how anxious we were when a man fell ill many hundreds of miles from home, and we had a fortnight of thick weather and had to find our depot or starve. We remember the cry of, Camp Ho! which preceded the cup of tea which gave us five more miles that evening, the good fellowship which completed our supper after safely crossing a bad patch of crevasses, the square inch of plum pudding which celebrated our Christmas day, the shanties we sang all over the barrier as we marched our ponies along. We travelled for science, those three small embryos from Cape Crozier, that weight of fossils from Buckley Island, and that mass of material less spectacular but gathered just as carefully hour by hour in wind and drift, darkness and cold, were striven for, in order that the world may have a little more knowledge, that it may build on what it knows instead of on what it thinks. Some of our men were ambitious, some wanted money, others a name, some a help up the scientific ladders, others an FRS. Why not? But we had men who did not care a rap for money or fame. I do not believe it mattered to Wilson when he found that Amundsen had reached the Pole a few days before him. Not much. Pennell would have been very bored if you had given him a knighthood. Lily, Bowers, Priestley, Debenham, Atkinson, and many others were much the same. But there is no love lost between the class of men who go out and do such work, and the authorities at home who deal with their collections. I remember a conversation in the hut during the last bad winter. Men were arguing fiercely that professionally they lost a lot by being down south, that they fell behindhand in current work, and got out of the running, and so forth. There is a lot in that. And then the talk went on to the publication of results, and the way in which they would wish them done. 
a said he wasn't going to hand over his work to be mucked up by such and such a body at home b said he wasn't going to have his buried in museum bookshelves never to be seen again c said he would jolly well publish his own results in the scientific journals and the ears of the armchair scientists who might deal with our hard-won specimens and observations should have been warm that night at the time i felt a little indignant it seemed to me that these men ought to think themselves lucky to be down south at all there were thousands who would have liked to take their place but now i understand quite a lot more than i did then science is a big thing if you can travel a winter journey in her cause and not regret it i am not sure she is not bigger still if you can have dealings with scientists and continue to follow in her path end of chapter 6 part 4